Now, Joshua chapter 9, beginning uh, at the beginning and reading to the end. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland along, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. The this that they had heard was apparently the early victories of Israel over Jericho and Ai. A number of kings and peoples rose en masse to fight off the invasion. They may have been emboldened by the report of Israel's initial defeat at Ai. Perhaps, perhaps that made them think that if only a larger force were gathered, the Canaanites might drive Israel from the land. But one town thought better of the idea. So before we read of the next battle with the Canaanite people, we are treated to a somewhat odd and surprising episode in which Israel was duped by some devious Canaanites who knew better than to risk battle with the invaders. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. Gibeon was a city which was, in fact, uh, located simply uh, six miles northwest of Jerusalem, so not very far away at all. We read in chapter 10, verse 2, that Gibeon was a great city and that all its men were warriors. Gibeon was the chief city of the Hivites, one of the peoples mentioned in verse 1. Now, the Gibeonites, as will be further confirmed in verse 24, already knew that while Israel intended to conquer, if not to exterminate, the citizens of Canaan, they were at liberty to make covenants and treaties with cities and states outside the promised land. Perhaps the Israelites weren't the only ones with spies gathering intelligence about their enemies. They found Israel encamped once again at Gilgal, having returned south from the covenant-making ceremony near Shechem. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? So Joshua was not a dupe. He knew to ask the right questions. He was alert to the possibility of deception. They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon and Og the king of Bashan who lived in Ashtaroth. You notice they don't say anything about the recent victories over Jericho and Ai. That might give away the fact that they knew more about Canaan than... um, than foreigners should. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, 
Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. These men knew how to sell a lie. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Um, There is some debate in the commentaries as to whether the men of Israel were simply sampling the food, that is, inspecting it to see if it is in fact old and proof that these folk had come from a great distance, or whether this is a reference to a meal that was part of the covenant ratification ceremony. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them uh, to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Now, the terms of the covenant are spelled out in only a very summary way, as well as the nature of the covenant-making ceremony, because Joshua's readership would have understood how all of this went and what a covenant like this would include. One of the stipulations of the treaty apparently was a promise of help if either party should be threatened. That will come into play in the next chapter in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 10. The treaty would typically include as well sanctions against any party that violated its stipulations or terms. If you remember, King Saul, several centuries later, tried to annihilate the Gibeonites. The Lord punished Israel with a severe famine as a result, and eventually seven of Saul's descendants, grandsons and great-grandsons, were handed over to the Gibeonites to be executed as punishment for Saul's attempt to break this treaty, even though it had been made centuries before. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. We're not told how Israel learned that the Gibeonites lived not, in fact, far away, but quite close by, and that they were Canaanites through and through, But the fact that they were impaled Israel on the horns of a dilemma. If they kept the covenant that they made with the Gibeonites, they would violate a direct commandment of God which had been made and remade and published several times in the book of Deuteronomy not to make a treaty with any Canaanite people. On the other hand, if they broke the covenant, they would betray an oath solemnly sworn in Yahweh's name. As C.S. Lewis remarks in his wonderful The Weight of Glory, like a good chess player, Satan is always trying to maneuver you into a position where you can save your castle only by losing your bishop. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Cheperot, Berot, Kiriath-Jerim. In other words, there were four cities in a confederation, as there would be five Philistine cities in a confederation, as you remember from Samuel. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. So like human nature, the people complain of their leaders that they were 
so easily duped. No, though no doubt, until the discovery was made, they were perfectly happy with the arrangements that had been made. In any case, their blood was up, and they wanted to punish the Gideonites for having deceived them, but they were prevented by the sanctity of Israel's oath. We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will, not, this we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. That mention of the word congregation uh, anticipates the particular, the precise work that they were to do, as we'll see. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed. And some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. The quality of the Gibeonite intelligence was considerably better than what we typically get from the CIA today. This is virtually a citation of the book of Deuteronomy. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Um, apparently, this was an acceptable outcome for the Gibeonites, certainly preferable to uh, execution and extermination. Verse 10 suggests that they had the foresight to expect that they were trading freedom and status for their lives. Apparently, so we read both in verse 23 and at the end of the chapter, that the particular focus of Gibeonite labor was to be at the sanctuary. They would cut and carry the wood needed for the altar fires and carry the water needed for the ritual cleansing of the Levites and the priests and the washing of blood from the pavement at the sanctuary, a considerable amount of both wood and water. The chapter ends with another reference to Deuteronomy, this to the fact that a place would eventually be chosen where the sanctuary would be located. It is one of the demonstrations of the historicity and the antiquity of the book of Deuteronomy. You know that many uh, more uh, liberal biblical scholars say that it was written uh, at about the time of the exile or shortly before. Uh, but um, here is one of the demonstrations of its antiquity. At the time the book was written, nobody knew what the location would be where the sanctuary uh, would be put. Our Father, we have before us this morning a text that uh, is a window on the life of the world and of the church. Basic lessons for all of us to learn, to take to heart, to practice in our lives, and a reminder of how great and holy you are. Write this word upon our hearts, we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen.
there is something wonderfully lifelike about this narrative. Ordinary human life is always complicated by the fact that we can't rely on other people to be what they represent themselves to be or to be honest in their speech and by the fact that we are often, very often, deceived, duped, tricked. And there's something emphatically straightforward in the lesson of the narrative, namely that no matter what other people say or do, no matter how foolish we may have been, we are still obliged to be true to our word. There's another lesson here that is also particularly important for any human being to take to heart, perhaps especially young people. There are a good number of problems, serious problems in life, the only real solution to which is never to have gotten into them in the first place. There being, these are universal truths that are on display in this chapter. They are being displayed and proved to us every day, all over the world, at every level of human affairs. International relations. There are the dupers and the dupees. There, in national politics, everybody's a duper and everybody is a dupee. Society and culture and the life of both the family and the individual. The facts of human life, of course, are also the facts of believing life, of Christian life, for Christian life is human life. Indeed, it's human life as human life is supposed to be lived, as the knowledge of God and the presence of God and the knowledge of the truth enables a person to live. But of course, Christians remain sinners and often make the same mistakes other people make, usually because they do not take full advantage of the truth that they know. The narrator intrudes but once in this account. From the beginning of the chapter to the end, he has given us a report of what happened. True enough, we know as we begin to read about the Gibeonites, who they actually were and what they are proposing to do, Joshua and the other leaders of the people did not know that as the chapter begins. And the narrator then goes on to tell us how they deceived the Israelites and what became of that. But in the midst of that historical narrative, the author intrudes one observation of his own. This happens rarely in Joshua. So when it does, we're alerted to the fact that there is something here the narrator, the narrator thinks is very important and wants to be sure we did not miss. His comment is found in verse 14. The Israelite leadership did not ask counsel from the Lord. That's where they went wrong. They should have consulted the Lord. Had they done so, the deceit would have been unmasked and the mistake avoided. In fact, in Numbers 27:21, Joshua was explicitly commanded by Moses to consult the Lord when decisions had to be made, especially important decisions. The high priests had been furnished with the uh, Urim and the Thummim, so there was a way to secure answers to questions like this one. Should we enter into 
a covenant with these people? And the Urim and the Thummim would have said yes or no. Joshua was not unaware of the risk of deceit. He asked some appropriate questions, but he didn't consult the Lord and he was too easily persuaded. The problem was not a failure to think. The problem was a failure to pray, to consult the Lord and his wisdom. Now, of course, today we don't have the Urim and the Thummim, but we have some ways of consulting the Lord that Joshua and the Israelites did not have. We have the full 66 books of the Word of God, and we have the liberty to pray to the Lord and to seek guidance and direction from him. What is the situation people face today that is most like the one described in Joshua 9. It's marriage. As we noticed last Lord's Day evening, marriage is also a covenant. The same word used in verse 15 for the treaty that Joshua made with the Gibeonites is used several places in the Old Testament to describe a marriage, a covenant. What is more, marriage was then and is now entered into by the taking of vows, just as this covenant was enacted with vows. And how many times has this happened? How many times have you and I seen it happening? A young woman, a young man like Joshua here, fails to do his or her due diligence fails to be careful to consult the Lord and to take seriously what she hears in return, or he. She's so much wanting to get married, so much wanting to get out of the house and get on with her life. She wants what she wants. And so, she doesn't take care. And she is more easily duped. She convinces herself she can count on this fellow, that he's a reliable person. In more than a few cases that I'm aware of, no doubt some of you are aware of cases as well, there were some initial reservations about the match, some doubts expressed some questions raised about whether the young man was everything he ought to be. Joshua had some initial doubts. But she loves him. She wants to get married. She's sure that he has provided with her with all the assurances necessary, just as the Gideonites did here. And so the marriage is made. The vows are taken. And not so much later, the young woman realizes that she's been duped. He wasn't the serious Christian. She had assured herself that he was. He wasn't as kind and thoughtful a person as he seemed to be during the courtship. Or she discovered that he had some very bad habits that she had not detected before. More often than not, alas, the young woman is angry over his deceit the false representation of himself. She's unwilling to admit that there were warning signs that she consciously ignored, that she had been willful and foolish, and that she had no one to blame but herself. 
But I know women, thoughtful, intelligent, and godly women, who will be the first to admit that they allowed themselves to be snookered and had no one to blame but themselves. After all, if a young man or a young woman really cares about godliness, is really zealous for the Lord, for his word, for his house, for his worship, for his people, for his name, for his cause, that should be so obvious that even the one who runs may read. Anybody who has to apologize, even to himself or herself, for the spiritual life of a prospective spouse, anyone who has to overcome the doubts of others, parents, pastors, and friends, by arguing that the person really is more committed to Jesus Christ than he or she may appear to be at first glance, is making the same mistake that Joshua made. He or she is failing to take seriously the unreliability of our own hearts, the absolute necessity of taking with full seriousness the Word of God, and the folly of making major decisions in life without practicing an active and humble dependence upon the Lord. Joshua's failure is a failure that is made every single day in the Christian church, Every one of us has made it more than once. But in the case of some decisions, the consequences last a lifetime. In the same way that Israel made a covenant with a Canaanite people, which she had been explicitly forbidden to do, Christians make covenants with unbelievers, supremely when they marry them. Or if not with unbelievers, with those who are barely Christians or almost Christians or perhaps Christians. We cannot count on the Canaanites to preserve us from such mistakes. They want what they want, and they don't naturally care very much about what is most important to us. They find it easy to deceive both themselves and those they marry. How easy, then, if one is not wary and thoughtful and careful, to mistake the flattery and the posing of a Gibeonite for the genuine and sturdy faith of a Rahab. We in the modern West nowadays struggle to understand why an oath obtained under false pretenses, or at least so we believe, we want to believe that we were deceived and did not deceive ourselves, why such an oath should have to be honored. But that's only because we are a people with a very low view both of the importance of the truth and of the honor of God. Not so in the Bible. A promise made, all the more a vow or an oath in which the Lord's name had been invoked, simply had to be kept. This is the Bible's viewpoint from beginning to end. In Genesis 27, we read the sorry account of Rebekah and Jacob tricking Isaac into giving Jacob the blessing that was intended for Esau. But that blessing was the Lord's blessing given by prophecy by the patriarch. No matter that it had been deceitfully obtained, the promise had been made. And when Esau pled with his father to give him the blessing that was his due, Isaac a man who had committed many grievous sins in the raising of his sons, still at least knew enough 
to realize that like the Israelites in Joshua 9, he could not go back on his word. He could not break the promise that he had made in the Lord's name. Seven of the descendants of Saul would eventually be executed because Saul had sought to break a covenant that Joshua and Israel made with the Gibeonites here in Joshua chapter 9. That's how seriously vows were taken by the faithful in those days. And that's the reason why. Because Yahweh takes them so seriously. In Ezekiel 17, we read of the Lord's anger towards Zedekiah, one of the last kings of Judah. Zedekiah had sworn an oath to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, that he would submit to Babylonian rule. But he then broke that promise and betrayed that oath by entering into negotiations with the Egyptians. The Lord punished Zedekiah by consigning him to exile and then death in Babylon. And so we read in Ezekiel 17, 16 to 20, explicitly because he betrayed a promise he had made in the Lord's name to a pagan king. In Malachi 2, we read that the prayers of God's people were falling on deaf ears in heaven because Israelite men were betraying the covenants they had made with their wives, divorcing them to marry other women. No wonder then that we read in Psalm 15, in an elaborate description of a godly man, that such a man swears to his own hurt and does not change. The NIV aptly translates the same phrase as who keeps his oath even when it hurts. The psalm has been remembered in Scotland as the psalm to be sung at the deathbed of an elder. Why? Because an elder is supposed to be that kind of a man. A man whose word is absolutely reliable. Whose promise is always kept. A man who keeps his oath even when it hurts. And no wonder that Jesus should say a similar thing in his Sermon on the Mount. In effect, don't swear lightly because when you swear in the name of God, God expects you to be faithful. Do you see how emphatic the Word of God is at this point? Even covenants made and sworn under the most deceitful of conditions are nevertheless to be kept inviolate. God's people are to keep their word. And God's name, so often invoked when Christians make vows and swear oaths, must not be dishonored. What does the couple say when they marry? I, Robert, take you, Florence, to be my wife. And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband and so on. Eternity alone will tell how much of our trouble in the American church nowadays, and we have a lot of trouble, is due to the fact that our prayers are not being heard because we're not keeping our word and we're not fulfilling the vows that we have sworn in God's name. But there is something in this chapter to encourage us as well. It is not simply a warning against being duped because we haven't carefully consulted the word of God. It's not simply an example of the terrible emphasis 
that the Bible places on the importance of God's people keeping their word and fulfilling their promises. It's also a reminder that God honors that faithfulness because he is himself faithful and because he loves faithfulness and he loves it when he sees it in the life of his people. Our sin needn't be the last word. Halfway through the chapter, were we unaware of how the story ends, we might have expected a very different ending than, in fact, we read. If the Joshua that we read of here in chapter 9 were a modern American Christian, he might have conceived of a clever way around his mistake. He might have offered an argument for breaking the covenant that had, after all, been made under false pretenses. But if we know the Bible at all well, we are not surprised that Joshua and the leaders of Israel, each one of them at this point a believing man, understood that option was not open to them. But if we know the Bible at all well, we also know by the end of chapter 9, we have not read, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. Sure enough, the Gibeonites were pressed into service as woodcutters and water carriers for the sanctuary of God. We're talking about the adult men and only some of them as we read near the end of the chapter. The women and children would have continued with their life much as it was before. But at least some of the men would have ceased to be farmers or shopkeepers or craftsmen or traders and become instead laborers in the service of the Israelites. Joshua couldn't break the covenant he had made, but he did what he could to put these tricksters in their place and to preserve Israel from the temptation to take their cue from the dishonesty of these men. Sin pays a wage, and the Gibeonites had certainly sinned. This was no doubt a come down for them. But it, or something like it, was no doubt what the Gibeonites had expected would be their lot. They didn't imagine when they plotted their trickery that their lives were going to continue unaffected by Israel's invasion of the land. They knew they would be exchanging some freedom and prosperity for their lives. People do that all the time. In particular, in times of war, people are always weighing the cost of continuing the battle against the likelihood of victory. And when it is clear they cannot win, they often accept the enemy's terms, even if they are draconian terms. Because even harsh terms end up being better than the alternative. The Lord Jesus, remember, once reminded us of the wisdom of this course of action. If your enemy is coming and you know you can't beat him, come to terms. Get the best terms you can, of course, but it is better to live yourself and to save your loved ones than to sacrifice them all in a war you know you cannot win. That's precisely what the Gibeonites thought and precisely what they did. So among all the peoples of Canaan who suffered crushing defeat in battle, the destruction of their homes and towns, the death of their armies and their civilian populations, there stood the Gibeonites, safely going on with their lives in untouched cities and towns. Servants, to be sure, or at least a good number of them. But how long was that to last? So far as we know, it wasn't all that long. 
before the Gibeonites were largely assimilated into the population of Israel. No doubt this happened over time, but that it happened is clear in the word of God. They remained in Saul's day, still identifiably a group of people within the boundaries of Israel. But whether they were still Israel's woodcutters and water carriers, we cannot say. But later still, the Gibeonites had clearly already become simply Israelites with a different ancestry. One of David's mighty men, one of the men upon whom he relied most assuredly, confidently, was a Gibeonite. In Nehemiah 3.7, we read that men of Gideon repaired part of the wall of Jerusalem when Nehemiah saw to the rebuilding of the walls of the capital. And in the list of those who returned to Judea from exile in Babylon, we read in Nehemiah 7.25, there were 95 sons of Gibeon, 95 families in that group of exiles returning. Those were believers who came back to the promised land from exile. And among those believers a sizable group of Gibeonites. Indeed, we wonder if there were not among the men who first came to Joshua, made to appear as if they had come from a great distance, if there were not some who were already believers. When they told Joshua in verse 9 that they had come because of the name of the Lord your God, they may have been at least in part, at least some of them, telling the truth. Rahab had realized that Yahweh was something utterly different than the gods of Canaan. Perhaps these men had as well. In other words, the Lord honored the covenant that Joshua made with the Gibeonites, no matter that the covenant was the result of some Gibeonite chicanery and Israelite foolishness. He not only honored it by requiring Israel to leave some Canaanites unmolested in the promised land, a spiritually risky thing to do, but by allowing the Hivites, like Rahab, eventually to find a place within his people and to be numbered as the people of God. The danger of leaving the Hivites in the promised land was, of course, the danger Israel was repeatedly warned against previously in Deuteronomy, namely that the Canaanites, with their sensuality and with their material prosperity, would lead Israel astray. The Lord prevented that from happening, not only by Joshua's assigning them to work for the sanctuary where they would be constantly exposed to Israel's worship and Israel's God and Israel's faith, but in another way. It wasn't Joshua's intention when he made the covenant with Gibeon that they should become Israelites in due time, but in fact that is what happened. From the vantage point of eternity, perhaps the most wonderful feature of this history here in Joshua chapter 9 is that there are now Gibeonites in heaven where sin abounded grace abounded still more in time they learned the truth about the one living and true God they witnessed his faithfulness to his people surely there were some perhaps a good number who early on like Rahab realized their only hope for this life and the next was Yahweh himself and became his followers Why did this happen? Because unlike men so often, the Lord is always true to his word. He never lies. He never deceives. He always keeps his promises. And among those promises is this one. 
He who comes to me, I will never drive away. Men savvy enough to make peace with Israel before they could attack and destroy them when all their countrymen were still thinking about doing battle were savvy enough to realize that Yahweh is the Lord of heaven and earth as Rahab had before them. If we know that, and if we know that the Lord never permits his word to fall or fail, that his promises are yea and amen and are always kept, then we too will want to honor him by keeping our word and faithfully fulfilling all our promises, the promises we have made to him, the promises we have made to one another.